This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. From Slate. I had a drill sergeant in basic training who served in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and he would talk to us at night about what those were like. And he always said that of the two, Afghanistan is the one that's going to mess you up. He was never able to sleep. He would take Ambien like candy. He said just the, the distances, the walking, the irregular tempo, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, he said Afghanistan is the one that's going to really change you. From Slate, this is Hi-Fi Nation. Philosophy in story form. Recording from Vassar College, here's Barry Lamb. If the U.S. war in Afghanistan were a person, this would be the year it would graduate high school, go to college, maybe even enlist and serve in itself. Current peace talks with the Taliban, even if successful, would see the U.S. with troop levels roughly the same as the initial invasion for at least a few more years. It's been called the forever war, characterized by successful missions, drawdowns, and then reversals and re-engagement across three presidential administrations. Today on Hi-Fi Nation, we're going to take a retrospective on the war and its costs, financial and moral. We're going to hear from veterans who served at each stage of the war as it developed from a war of retribution to a morally intractable bundle of sunk costs and failed strategies. I'm joined today by journalist Doug Wissing, who has done extensive work covering where the money went and Seth Lazar, philosopher at the ANU, who specializes in the ethics of war. We talk about moral intractability, where decisions you've made and costs you've incurred seem to obligate you to fix problems you've created, leading down the path to forever wars. And I call up Nita Crawford, a director of the Cost of War Project at Brown University. She gives me the real numbers, not the government numbers, on how much the wars are costing us in tax dollars. Where are you on 9-11? I was at a machine gun range. Okay. I was the infantry officer basic course, and everyone kind of came in and huddled around a little radio that somebody had. Oh, I was a junior in high school. I was in sixth grade. I mean, I was in fifth grade when 9-11 happened. We did start to read some of the old Soviet experiences oh, in Afghanistan. There was a book called The Bear Went Over the Mountain, which immediately became ridiculously expensive because there were so few copies, and now all of a sudden a lot of military officers wanted it. Like, I personally sought out. I wanted to go to Afghanistan at that point. An often forgotten piece of history leading up to the initial invasion of Afghanistan is that the Taliban had offered to give up Osama bin Laden to a neutral third-party country after the U.S. had provided evidence of his involvement in the 9-11 attacks. Even before that, U.S. attorney Patrick Fitzgerald took a trip to Pakistan to offer them evidence of bin Laden's ongoing involvement in terrorist attacks targeting the U.S., in the hopes that the Pakistanis would help in having the Taliban turn over bin Laden. No negotiations were ever made. Bush rejected the offer as a ploy. My name is Douglas Wissing. I'm a journalist who's been covering the war in Afghanistan since about 2009. The origins of the current Afghanistan war goes back to the secret CIA war against the Soviet Union, which began in 1979 and went on until 1989 when the Soviets withdrew. After the Soviets withdrew in 89, the U.S. kind of lost interest in Afghanistan. We zeroed out all our development budgets. An incredible tribalized civil war broke out, and that lasted from 92 to about 1996. The Taliban took control of the majority of the country by September 1996. One major part of the country the Taliban didn't control was the Northeast. It was where the Afghan administration that preceded the Taliban fled the Islamic State of Afghanistan. Unlike the Taliban, who were mostly Pashtun, Islamic fundamentalists and totalitarians, leaders of the Islamic State were mostly Tajiks, had more scholarly interpretations of Islam, and were democratic. Two figures loomed large there, 
and would be major players later. Burhanuddin Rabbani was the former president of the Islamic State of Afghanistan. And Ahmad Shah Massoud was a guerrilla commander who was a legend for holding off and eventually driving out the Soviets. Together, they were able to hold off Taliban incursions into the northeastern territories for years. And they took in refugees from Taliban-controlled areas. They called themselves the United Front Against the Taliban. In the West, they were known as the Northern Alliance. The U.S. had a very conflicted relationship with the Taliban. On the one hand, President Clinton and his advisors, they were very positive about the relative order in Afghanistan after the Civil War. The State Department would bring Taliban government leaders here on junkets and, you know, they would take them to Mount Rushmore. So as you can imagine, the Taliban at Mount Rushmore, but they would take them on trips to the shopping malls. In contrast, the Clinton administration initially had poor relations with the Northern Alliance. It had opposed moves by the alliance to take Taliban-controlled territory. There were even reports that the administration wanted Ahmad Shah Massoud to surrender to the Taliban. The Clinton administration at the time was trying to take a pro-Pakistan turn in relations, and the Taliban came to power and were kept in power with help from Pakistan's ISI, their version of the CIA. In fact, that remained true throughout the American war. Massoud, on the other hand, received aid and assistance from India and Iran, enemies of Pakistan. Now, that's the one side. On the other hand, they started going after the Taliban government about women's issues because it polled very well with feminists, which was a key part of the democratic base. And so much of what's gone on in Afghanistan relates to U.S. domestic politics, electoral politics. Well, the U.S. started organizing boycotts and embargoes against this very weak Taliban government, which turned to Osama bin Laden and the radical Arabs for support, financial By the early days of the Bush administration, internal events happening in Afghanistan were, in hindsight, clear signals about al-Qaeda's next move. In April 2001, the Northern Alliance's Ahmad Shah Massoud was invited and spoke in Europe, warning about Pakistan's involvement in keeping the Taliban in power, and that al-Qaeda was in the country planning terrorist attacks against the United States. In August of 2001, two al-Qaeda operatives from Tunisia posing as journalists, requested an interview with Massoud. He made them wait for three weeks and then gave them five minutes. On September 9, 2001, as they were setting up for the interview, one of the men detonated a bomb inside the camera, killing Ahmad Shah Massoud just two days before the scheduled 9-11 attacks. And then 9-11 happened, which had its origins in the training camps in Afghanistan. And the U.S. invaded in October 2001. The working theory of al-Qaeda's assassination of Massoud was that al-Qaeda had been looking to weaken the Northern Alliance leading up to the 9-11 attacks so that there would be no unified armed resistance to the Taliban inside of Afghanistan if the West were to respond. Al-Qaeda may have underestimated just how weak the Taliban government was. And the Taliban quickly melted away. So we were the second ones in. It was actually relatively quiet. We didn't take very many casualties as a unit. I think we had one death. As a platoon leader, I had artillery devoted to me. I had an AH-64 Apache gunship, an F-18 fighter bomber, and a B-52. And I thought, this is utterly ridiculous. Like, I cannot... I mean, it's great to have more than you need, but this is just over the top. Major Ian Fishback, U.S. Army, 2001 to 2014. The Northern Alliance took control of the country in a little over a month with the full might of U.S. air power behind it. The last city under Taliban control was captured on November 26, 2001, and Burhanuddin Rabbani, the former president, took over again as interim president. After the invasion, there was the Bonn Conference that the U.S. and the coalition forces organized to put together an interim government. The U.S. orchestrated Hamid Karzai being chosen to run the interim government, and they did that by threatening to withhold 6 to $10 billion in aid and development money. That was in spite of another Afghan figure, an Uzbek royalist named Abdul Sirat, who had 
the broad support of the groups at the convention. There are a lot of reasons why Karzai may have been the preferred candidate of the U.S. The factions struggling for power were Rabbani's wing in the Northern Alliance, representatives of the former king of Afghanistan, Zahir Shah, who was living in exile in Italy since he was ousted in 1973, and Karzai, the only person of that group who fought with the Northern Alliance, was a Pashtun and didn't have a history of being caught up on the wrong side in the first civil war. And soon after Karzai took office, he started making deals with these very powerful drug lords that were allied with the U.S. And it started Afghanistan on this road to where it is today, a wholly corrupt narco-kleptocracy. So from this early period, 2003, 2005, the war was only costing the U.S. government about $17 billion a year. There were around 14,000 soldiers there because our emphasis had shifted to Iraq and most of those resources followed that neocon drive. This period, 2003-2005, is also where you see an enormous mission creep going from a pretty low-level invasion and military presence into this drive to remake Afghanistan into something that looks like Switzerland, an avalanche of aid and development contracts being let out, this new expanded counterinsurgency mission. In the process, it completely overwhelmed the very tiny Afghan economy. It it ignited an immense inflation. It really fed corruption. One example of how absurd this got, there, there is a ring road that was built in Afghanistan that's been there for kind of a long time that connects all the major cities, runs the perimeter of Afghanistan. So we decided we were going to build an American-style ring road, but it was essentially a skinny two-lane that runs around the edge of Afghanistan. That contract was let out to an American group called Lewis Berger, and they managed to get a contract for a million dollars a mile for a very poor road, very bad roadbed, holes the size that could swallow a donkey in its cart. You probably have more asphalt on your driveway than was put on that road. They didn't do that work. They subcontracted it to somebody who subcontracted it, somebody who subcontracted it. And, by, and everybody's taken 20%, 20%, 20%. It finally gets down to some guy on the ground who's trying to do a project with you know half or 40% of the money. And you get a lousy project. In 2010, Lewis Berger was charged in order to pay about $70 million in criminal and civil fines for overcharging the U.S. government in its development contracts. Five years later, the former CEO of Lewis Berger pled guilty to conspiracy to defraud USAID. A recent 2018 Special Inspector General's report on Afghan reconstruction found that of all the unnecessary spending in Afghanistan, Only 1% of it was fraud. The rest was just waste. There's a toxic system that connects ambitious American careerists, for-profit U.S. corporations, corrupt Afghan insiders, and the Taliban. And so you're sort of asking, where did the money go? And where it went is it went to the wealthy neighborhoods around Washington. It went to Geneva. It it went to the corporations, who in turn passed money back to the congressmen that voted for it, the lobbyists, the American careerists that move on up. They punch their ticket in Afghanistan, whether you're a diplomat or a soldier. You know, you get a combat arms patch. If you're a colonel, you get to be a brigadier general. It goes to corrupt Afghan insiders, and it goes to the Taliban. The U.N. has estimated that about 20% of all U.S. dollars spent in Afghanistan ends up in the insurgents' hands. One example of how the U.S. ends up funding both sides of the war is to see how we've paid for gasoline. The U.S. pays $600 per gallon to fuel the war in Afghanistan. This is a petrol war. We just drink petrol. And Afghanistan has no reserves, so, you know, you got to bring it in. So how do you get convoys of tanker trucks through Taliban country. 
Well, we let out a security contract. Who controls the security contract? Very powerful Afghans. How did they get it through? Well, they give a chunk of money to the Taliban to let the convoy go through. The, the figure that I have seen is each tanker truck that goes through the Taliban get $1,500. As the aid kept pouring in over the years leading up to the Obama surge, the Taliban could regroup through getting a cut in security contracts for just about any project needing security, which was all of them. Meanwhile, every construction contracting company, every boutique NGO looking for funding, had their hand out looking to supply Afghanistan with some professed good. There was the Grape Trellis Project, where Westerners spent millions building thousands of grape trellises, trying to get Afghans to grow their grapes European-style to increase the yield. There was the attempt by a Texas group to helicopter in wheat seeds to plant on land 10,000 feet in elevation. These groups had to eventually junk stacks of trellises and the wheat project after realizing the Afghanistan climate would dry out any grapes grown that way and that the elevation couldn't support wheat. And then there were the weird ones. The uh, CIA operatives hit on a way to influence tribal elders. They would hand out Viagra. The thinking was that it would stiffen their resistance to the Taliban. This last part is a quote. If they could resume an authoritative position, I think is the quote. There were lots and lots and lots of NGOs that did all kinds of things because they could get funding for about anything. So you just would run across really some goofy things. Comfort Aid International, their gig was they would finance dowries and weddings for impoverished Afghan males with the thought that if they got married, they wouldn't join the Taliban. I haven't seen any follow-up data on that. The story of U.S. spending in Afghanistan is not just the story of military spending. It's the story of U.S. AID money, international development money, and drug money. Opium is one of the only consistently valuable crops that is easy to grow in the Afghan climate. Afghanistan supplies up to 90% of the illicit opium in the world. Everyone from the Afghan government to the Taliban are in on it. If trickle-down economics worked, you'd expect that 18 years of spending and opium poppy money flooding a small, impoverished country would make the country a hub of economic development. We're going to spend about $45 billion in 2018 alone on Afghanistan. That is more than the entire U.S. infrastructure budget. It is more than the homeland security budget. Let's not forget, it's a small country, a very poor country. It's only got a per capita income of about $400 a year. There's only about 30 million Afghans. When we invaded Afghanistan, was at the bottom of virtually every human development indices. Infant mortality, caloric intake, life expectancy, per capita income, literacy, electricity usage, I mean, you name it, they were at the bottom. So we have spent more on aid and development alone in Afghanistan, adjusted for inflation, than we spent on the Marshall Plan. At the end of that, after 17 years, Afghanistan is still a disaster zone it is still near the bottom of virtually every human development index. In 2009, it was time for the millennials to fight in the forever war. Obama's surge. Um, I graduated high school in 2008. One summer, I decided to go and talk to a recruiter, and I enlisted with an infantry paratrooper contract. It was sort of like the gateway into the special ops community. Josh Maxwell, U.S. Army, 82nd Airborne Division. I'm Gavin Iyer. I did five years in the Marine Corps as a grunt with 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. During this period, Hamid Karzai had a falling out with his vice president, Ahmad Zia Massoud. This was Ahmad Shah Massoud's younger brother. It might have been the corruption. It might have been the promotion of peace talks with the Taliban. But in any case, Ahmad Zia Massoud 
reformed alliances with central military figures from the Northern Alliance in preparation for the possibility of the Taliban returning to power or power sharing, and as an alternative to Karzai's party. The same year this happened, former President Burhanuddin Rabbani, who was also Zia Massoud's father-in-law, was assassinated by a Taliban suicide bomber. The same civil war that played out in the 90s was re-emerging, right down to the Pakistani support for the Taliban and Indian and Iranian support for the Massouds. This time, the U.S. was there to take a side. The military spending on the war in Afghanistan started rising in the waning days of the Bush administration, but it took off and stayed high during the Obama years, reaching six times what Bush was spending on Afghanistan in 2010, 11, and 12. Casualty numbers followed the spending, almost perfectly. Tell me about the events that led up to you uh, losing your leg. So, like usual, we hit the ground, Taliban flee, they have spotters. We have a guy in front sweeping for mines. I split off to go follow behind some machine gunners. Um, we were going to set up on this little ledge on the side of a mountain looking down into the hamlet. The spot I went to literally looked like Ares, the god of war, had made it himself to shoot people from. What was your first operation when you got to Afghanistan? A, a Taliban operator had went into a, a market following a local police officer, a commander, and his two bodyguards. And he opened up on them with an AK-47 and killed all three of them, and then activated his suicide vest and blew himself up in the market and created a lot of casualties. It was perfect. There was like this giant rock wall came up, and then it kind of V'd down into a cut where you could just set up your rifle and just have your entire way with the valley. Like, perfect spot. I asked them if this area that I was going to had been swept. I thought I heard yes. Maybe I did hear yes. So we just started getting bombarded with civilian vehicles used as makeshift ambulances. Thinking that the machine gunner said they cleared it, I had a war boner. I'm about to get some people. Like, this spot's gonna be great. I'm about to see everybody shooting at us and kill them all. The SF medic was like sleeping in his, they had like their own individual bedrooms. Someone senior to me told me to go wake him up. So I ran and started knocking on his door. I didn't hear anything, so I just opened his door and went in. We are about to finally get to kill some Taliban. Finally, cuffs are off. Everything's about to go perfect. He was just like, don't fucking open my door without my permission. Close the door and try again. Well, like I said, I stepped in an ID because the Taliban knew it. They were like, some jackass is gonna go here when we ambush. That's, that's how we're gonna get them. One particular guy who had passed away, he was young, maybe mid-20s, and his brother was one of the Afghan commandos who was on our VSO, on our compound. Dust starts to settle, and I come to, and I'm like, look at my hands first. And I went and I checked my junk. And as I'm like going through that motion, like that's when the pain in the legs really started to set, and I lifted my head a little bit, and that's when I saw the stumps. I think his brother had actually thought that he was alive. He had received a gunshot wound to the back of the head and a couple others to the body, and he was, you know, he was gone. But his body was still, like, twitching, and his eyes were, like, moving around. Once he realized that his brother was dead, he just started this guttural wailing that I don't think I'll ever forget. The two bones that make up your lower leg, the tibia and the fibia, were both cut off, and the calf muscle was what was connecting them still. About five minutes after I get blown up, you know, the, the medic, we call him a corpsman, he's come up. My spotter has helped me get tourniquets on. You know what I mean? Like, bleeding is under control. I'm not going to die at this point. And then we start hearing machine gun fire. And I remember going to the bathroom after that and looking at myself in the mirror, just drenched in blood. And just being like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm in Afghanistan. And so as they're, like, rushing me the 100 meters to the helicopter, so, like, I just remember, like, legs, like, off the edge, like, tinkling, like, tink, 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 just hitting each other. <laughs> that was probably one of the worst feelings I can describe in the world. I, I consider myself a pretty stoic guy, but I screamed like a little bitch. So I was in Afghanistan in 2014. Romario Ortiz, U.S. Army, 730th Transportation Company. Our mission in Afghanistan, it's called retrograde operations. Our job was, hey, this war is over. We have to bring all our shit back from all these outposts, and we're going to retrograde all that back to Bagram. We're 14, 15 years into this war at this point. Yeah, this and, and there's like no organization. There's no structure. There's no... <laughs> there was just one night we were in Fob Shank. And the roads were blacked out, which basically meant, like, no one can travel on the roads because it's so dangerous. And it was during the month of Ramadan, I think. 
the C-Ramp started going off because there was like a mortar attack. I didn't even get up. <laughs> we were in transient barracks, like these tents. And you could hear him going off overhead and you're just like, whatever. Why? Why? Why was that the reaction? <sighs> that was the reaction because it's like, you already know how it's going to end. Which is what? Everything's going to be fine? Everything's either going to be fine or if, if that thing lands on you, it's not like you're going to remember anyway. There's There was an acceptance of, I'm here, I'm just living day to day. If this happens to be my last day, then oh well. 2015. I've decided to maintain our current posture of 9,800 troops in Afghanistan through most of next year. 2016. Instead of going down to 5,500 troops by the end of this year, the United States will maintain approximately 8,400 troops in Afghanistan into next year through the end of my administration. 2017. Conditions on the ground, not arbitrary timetables, will guide our strategy from now on. America's enemies must never know our plans or believe they can wait us out. There's like a veteran's version of The Onion. They ran an article like two or three years ago that was like father and son proud to serve in the same district in Afghanistan. And now it's like the army has been putting out these promos and it shows like a father who's like a first sergeant and his son is like a private and they're going to Afghanistan together. And I'm like, do they not realize how absurd that is? My name is Pat DeYoung. I served in the U.S. Army from 2007 to 2013 as an infantryman. Josh Maxwell, Gavin Iyer, Pat DeYoung, Romario Ortiz. Veterans of Afghanistan, graduates and soon-to-be graduates of Vassar College. Hi. Nita Crawford is professor of political science and co-director of the Cost of War Project at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. I called her to get a realistic tally of the total cost of the Afghanistan war. But first, she gave me the total cost of all post-9-11 wars. Well, the total cost of these wars through fiscal year 2019 is about $5.9 Do you have a number teased apart from the rest of the spending of how much the war in Afghanistan in particular has cost? Yeah, I do. It's a, a bit over uh, $900 billion. The numbers from the Cost of War project are much higher than what the government will tell you because of how narrowly the government construes spending on overseas wars. That part of the budget is called Overseas Contingency Operations. The Cost of War project counts more, like spending that is a direct consequence of the war. There's veterans' care for the veterans who've already entered the VA system. At this point, it's about 3 million people. That number from these wars will peak, and it will peak at over 4 million people. These wars were not paid for by taxes. The overseas contingency operation money has essentially been borrowed. That means that the United States pays annual interest on that. And that's been about $715 billion. And the interest costs on paying for these wars will, at some point, exceed the cost of the wars. And one of the things that that the Cost of War Project does not count are the lives ruined. The very significant number of people who are either internally displaced or they are refugees in other countries. Soldiers in the U.S., Afghanistan, civilians, police officers who are not dead, but injured and maimed. Big numbers, like $900 billion or $5.9 trillion, are almost impossible to grasp. They need a lot of context and comparison just to understand the scale. One thing to do is make some comparison to things Americans want, but don't get because they're too expensive. So what I did was take the highest estimate of the cost of some things Americans have been asking for for a long time and tally them up trying to get up to the cost of the wars. For the Afghanistan war, about a trillion, 
we could have gotten an entire national high-speed rail system linking every major metropolitan area in America, built during the 18 years of the war. To get up to the cost of all post-9-11 wars is actually much harder. Add to the high-speed rail, everyone in the country who had a child getting three months paid family leave every year for 18 years. Add universal pre-K for all of those years. Add free college for all of those years. And it still wasn't close. You could cut all income taxes for the past 18 years for everyone who makes under 40000 a year, the bottom 50%. And that still left me with $100 billion a year to spend for 18 years, which is what the U.S. spends on all domestic law enforcement in the whole country. In comparison... Al-Qaeda spent $500,000 on the 9-11 attacks. It cost about a million dollars a year to keep a U.S. soldier in Afghanistan. Your average Afghan makes about $400 a year, so it doesn't cost very much to keep a Taliban fighter fighting. Maybe we should just outsource this entire war because the Taliban is far more honest, far less corrupt than the Afghan government. The areas that they're controlling may not be to the way that I would like to have a government run, but they do it pretty effectively, pretty or in an orderly way. The Taliban have had a saying for a long time, Taliban commanders, the Americans have the watches, but we have the time. Douglas Wissing. His books on Afghanistan are Funding the Enemy, and hopeless but optimistic. There are links to it on the website, hifination.org. Anytime you're engaged in an enterprise that's trying to achieve some good but has the prospect of realizing some morally relevant costs, the proportionality principle sets limits to the amount of costs that you can permissibly impose in the pursuit of that good. Philosopher Seth Lazar, head of schools at the Australian National University, is talking about the proportionality principle, a central moral principle in thinking about war or violence. So the very simplest form of proportionality calculation would say that if your goal is to save a certain number of lives, 10 lives, say, that could be permissible only if the cost was going to be no greater than 10 lives. But it's worth saying that this very simple view about how proportionality would work isn't shared by most of the people who think about proportionality, and it's not shared in common everyday practice. We don't think, for example, that a war would be permissible just in case it were to save just more lives than it takes. Let's assume for a second that the people planning and executing the war are rational people. There's something they want and they're aware that getting what they want is going to have financial and moral costs. How is it possible for anyone in this position to end up responding to a $500,000 crime that ended in 3,000 deaths with a $5.9 trillion 17-year endeavor costing 370,000 lives and 10 million refugees? Which assumptions about rationality are we missing that makes a decision like that rational? Some people think there aren't any. It's been one string of irrational decisions since at least 2009, maybe much earlier. We've been honoring sunk costs. So the sunk cost fallacy is an example of a predictable failure of rationality that people make. And the basic idea of it is that people give weight to costs they've already lost and allow them to affect their deliberations in ways that makes no sense given that they're costs that they've already lost and can't do anything about are no longer within their control to affect. A classic example is if you bought a ticket to a movie, and it really sucks, but you watch the whole movie because you figure you've paid for the ticket. You've now lost twice. You've already lost the money you paid, and you had a horrible two-hour experience. Now, what do sunk costs have to do with war? Well, appealing to them is almost a cliched refrain in continuing in war. People have died, soldiers, civilians. We've spent $4 trillion. We failed. We can't have that money go to waste. So let's spend a trillion more. Make that $4 trillion worth something. 
I think it's in the Gettysburg Address, this whole idea of sort of redeeming the cost of the people who have died in vain. This is a very prominent notion in war, that one of the reasons why we ought to continue fighting a war is that you need to redeem the costs, especially of the people on your side who have lost their lives in the pursuit of that objective. And it's the sort of thing that is clearly a very significant motivating factor for governments, for, for civilians as well. I actually think that this is the closest example one does get to uh, the economist's sunk cost fallacy. Instead, the economists say, you should be like Richard Fish. The character of Richard from Ali McBeal. Did you watch Ali McBeal? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Richard and Ali McBeal, his, his catchphrase basically was bygones, right? Anytime something had happened that kind of made him feel uncomfortable, that involved any implications to what he ought to do now, he would say bygones, right? And that's a very typical sort of homo economicus way of looking at the things that you do in life, is that anything that you can no longer affect should no longer affect your decision making. If you're Richard from Ally McBeal, you say bygones to the money you've paid and leave the movie. Do something you really want to do. In war, you disregard all of the cost you've already paid. You can't get money, lives, and lives ruined back. You have to consider what is the best thing for you to do with the money and lives you have at your disposal now. You might think that being rational, then, decisively tells against the continued prosecution of the war. But it doesn't. Disregarding sunk costs actually makes endless wars possible. To see why, consider an analogy. Suppose there's an operation attempting to save some hostages in a very dangerous situation. There's a good chance of success, but a good chance of failure. And failure could mean some innocent hostages are killed, maybe some of your own people, some bystanders. You go with the operation, but it fails. Some good and bad people are killed. Now it's weeks later, and the hostages are still being held. No progress has been made. What do you do? Disregarding sunk costs means that now you take no consideration of the fact that you failed in the past, that people were killed, because that's all in the past. You can't do anything about it. Right now, your decision-making has been completely reset. You've learned some things, you still have the situation where there's a good chance of success and a good chance of failure. Disregarding sunk costs means that you get to reset yourself at every moment without any regard for the past. Lazar calls this idea the perspective view. Which has much more in common with the economist's way of looking at these sort of problems, which essentially says that we work out proportionality at any given time just by looking forward from that time. So that's why it's called perspective. And you think about the expected cost you're going to inflict for the sake of the expected good, and you can disregard anything that has already been imposed. Now consider this line of reasoning. We've spent $5.9 trillion trying to prevent al-Qaeda from committing another attack on the scale of 9-11. And we're told by the very same people and agencies that the threat is still there if we leave Afghanistan. Maybe it's increased. Well, those $5.9 trillion are now sunk costs. We don't get to use it to justify spending more, but we don't get to use it to justify spending less. We get a total reset in our decision-making. Do the current conditions of Afghanistan justify an intervention? Well, if it did at the outset, it should now too. The situations are similar enough. It's a weird paradox. Disregarding sunk costs might actually be driving the continued occupation. But then honoring sunk costs gives you another argument for continuing the war. You have to redeem yourself for all the sacrifices of the past. But there are alternative ways of thinking about the morality of sunk costs. One such alternative is to look at them the way an accountant would. From the outset, you look at how much cost the conflict can justify. So there's a, a total budget, proportionality budget. Once you've spent that, you have to stop, and it's impermissible to continue to fight. Lazar calls this the quota view. You might call it the reasonable business person's view of moral costs. Sunk costs aren't sunk but rather part of the reasonable budget you set yourself ahead of time. One thing that constantly happens to me is I put a dollar in snack machines and the bag of Funyuns gets stuck. And then I have to decide whether I should put another dollar in to get the bag to drop. Here's what's true. I wouldn't ever have ahead of time paid $2 for a bag of Funyuns. It's also true that the dollar is gone. I can't get it back. And right now I'd rather have a bag of Funyuns than the dollar. 
I once put in $6 before I got a snack from a machine, and I was so pissed off I didn't even enjoy it afterward. If only I just stopped after a dollar. That's what I should do on the quota view. On the quota view, any reasonable budget given at the outset of the American response to 9-11 had been surpassed long ago. Past moral costs aren't sunk. They're part of a decision-making strategy telling you when to stop when you haven't succeeded. So the difference between the two views is essentially that one view says that at some point you just have to stop, and the other view says that in principle, as long as the backs of the case lend themselves to it, you could continue going on in this project forever. Two problems with the quota view make people generally rejected in real life. Sometimes you're just a little bit short of finishing your project. All you need is a few extra dollars, and it'll be done. One more class to get the double major. $10,000 more to finish the perfect kitchen renovation. Five more years to get the Afghan army fully independent. Do you just stop and accept failure when it looks like just a little more will mean success? Lazar actually thinks, unlike the economists, this is reasonable thinking. And most philosophers agree. A more serious problem with the quota view is that it allows you to shirk your own responsibilities for costs that you incur as a result of your errors. The things that we do in the past have implications for what we're permitted and required to do now. In particular, we can incur responsibility for cleaning up messes that we make. Now, this is especially true in those circumstances where we engage in a project that is at the very best morally optional, perhaps even morally impermissible at the outset. And the war in Afghanistan is very much an example of this. Now, some people would say that it was a just war at the outset. Nobody, I think, would say that it was a war that one had to go into. It was clearly a war of choice. It was morally optional. So in light of that fact, the costs that have been incurred in the early stages of the war in Afghanistan generate a, a bill that the parties that launched the war were liable to pay. It's certainly not the case that you simply respond to past wrongdoing by just getting out of the situation. You know, after a certain point in the 2000s, the war in Afghanistan just became morally utterly intractable. There was really no good way out of it. These kinds of responsibilities generated from wars and colonial endeavors means you can't just decide ahead of time what your proportionality budget can be. Your budget changes with the changing obligations you incur from the damage you've done. And that's the situation the political leadership probably sees itself in. They've long passed their moral quota. They've incurred responsibilities they can't just shirk. And taking the perspective view, they just keep seeing the same threat justify the same intervention. I want to leave you today with Seth Lazar's view. It's a complicated view. I'm going to have to simplify. One way to understand it is to think about how failure is supposed to motivate us. When we fail, and it's only ourselves who bear the cost, there's a range of okay ways to proceed. Keep trying, keep failing, keep bearing the cost on the off chance that you'll succeed. Or maybe quit, learn from the failure, know what you can't do anymore. But when we fail and cost others their limbs, their lives, their homes, and then try again and again, it just diminishes the value when you do succeed, if you succeed. It's like finally rescuing the hostages after 10 tries and killing 10 times more people than you've saved. Of course, saving the hostages is still valuable. But how much value does it have now, after all that sacrifice? Tragically, it's not more. It's less. Lazar calls this the discount view. What are the rights that we're aiming to vindicate at the beginning of the Afghanistan conflict? If you look at it sort of charitably, there was a view to defending the rights of American citizens who were somewhat vulnerable to threat from Al-Qaeda. As the attempt to, to wipe out Al-Qaeda and the sort of the successor role of the Taliban continues to impose costs on innocent people and continues to be unsuccessful, the grounds that we have for continuing to impose those costs in the pursuit of vindicating these real genuine rights diminishes and there just comes a point at which you have to say it's not okay to keep imposing the same magnitude of expected costs for the sake of vindicating these rights. Now that's consistent with always saying, look, there's always some value to vindicating those rights. 
So if the odds have now changed and you do see a genuine prospect of success, then it could be permissible to proceed. So we're not talking about the quota views notion that once you've used up your proportionality budget, no further costs are allowed. But it does mean that the burden of justification increases as you go along through a conflict. The intensity of the fighting has been growing the last several years. And many civilians have been caught either in a crossfire or deliberately targeted. This past year, 2018, was the greatest number of civilians killed since 2008 when the United Nations began to systematically count civilian casualties. You know, there's no way in which you could reciprocate. There's no way in which you can adequately compensate all the people who have already lost their lives. So you can't continue to incur those additional debts. Hi-Fi Nation is written, produced, and edited by Barry Lamb, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vassar College. For Slate Podcasts, Editorial Director is Gabriel Roth, Senior Managing Producer is June Thomas, Senior Producer is TJ Raphael. Production assistance this season provided by Jake Johnson and Noah Mendoza-Gut. Visit HiFiNation.org for complete show notes, soundtrack, and reading list for every episode. That's H-I-P-H-I-Nation.org. In our Slate Plus segment today, I'm going to give you excerpts from my call with Nita Crawford, co-director of the Cost of War Project at Brown University. And I'm going to give you an excerpt from my discussion with Doug Wissing about the Afghanistan opium trade and the U.S. policy there. And one of the things that, that the Cost of War Project does not count are the lives ruined or just harmed. Okay, And they're no longer as productive as they would be in their economy. This is a social cost. And the, the men and women who care for them are no longer able to fully participate in the activities that they were doing had this person not been injured. So, for example, many veterans come home not only with post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury, but with chronic pain from musculoskeletal injuries with difficulty breathing from working in near burn pits or in extremely dusty environments or with chemicals and so on. So people are quite sick. These veterans are sicker than many veterans in the past. It's not really calculable, but it's a burden that all these societies have to bear. It's a loss of productivity and welfare and a feeling of wellness. That's the first category. Second category of opportunity cost is what we could have otherwise done in many areas. And, and Heidi Peltier publishes our papers in the Cost of War Project on the economy, and she shows how many thousands of jobs more would be created by investing in other elements of the U.S. economy. Think of it as uh, one million dollars of military spending produces or nine jobs directly and indirectly. But if you spent that same amount of money teaching or rebuilding infrastructure or uh, other kinds of construction work or in healthcare, you could produce as many as twice that per million dollars. But of course, not just talking about millions, we're talking about hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. The third important cost is the fact that the United States military has long been the world's largest single greenhouse gas producer. Why? Because they're the largest single user of petroleum in the world. They use the majority of the U.S. government's petroleum. It produces massive amounts of greenhouse gas. Now, if the U.S. had not been at war, many millions of tons of carbon dioxide would not be in the atmosphere. There is a huge environmental cost to these wars. Well, tell me what happened after the U.S. invasion with respect to opium production. The Taliban, they, they banned opium production in 2000, July 2000. And it plunged 98%. By 2001, I think there were only 74 metric tons produced in Afghanistan. That's down from 4,500 metric tons in 1999, which is 
75% of the world's total. So the year after we invaded, 2002, after we put the drug lords in charge, 3,400 metric tons were produced. That's from 74 metric tons. And that number doubled and doubled and doubled again. By 2007, eight, it was at 8,000 metric tons. They've been having record harvests. I've kind of lost track. It's way over, way over 10,000, 12,000. It's now 90% of the world's illicit opium. The Karzai government was definitely part of it. His brother was definitely part of it. Most of the Afghan insiders were definitely part of it. The Taliban is part of it. Everybody kind of gets along, and, and it's, a, it's a highly codified, organized industry. It's a great industry for a, a very poor, you know, semi-arid place. There's a reason why it's become such a big crop, and it's, it's at least half of the Afghan economy, maybe higher than that now. What, what is the official U.S. policy towards the opium trade there, and what is its de facto policy? I think it would probably depend on the month and the person you're talking to. It's, it's, it has careened around quite a bit. Essentially, we try to pretend like it doesn't exist. I, I had one, uh, one American analyst tell me that officially he had not seen a poppy. He was in Helmand where it's poppies to the horizon. It's poppies on plantations. I, when I first started working on this, I, I thought it was like Afghan farmers with hoes. No, it's, it, this is like big business. It's tractors and, you know, it's a beautiful environment when the poppies are in bloom. But according to him, he officially hadn't seen any. There, there, I've heard stories of uh, seeing Marines marching very carefully through poppy fields because, you know, they didn't want to damage any of them. Because, of course, these Afghan farmers are dependent on that crop. That is the way they stay alive. So it's, it's, a, it's a very um, conflicted kind of viewpoint. And it, what it did is it set up then another great feeding trough, which was called alternative lifestyles, uh, which means we're going to set up these incredibly expensive programs, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to pay Afghan farmers to grow something besides poppies. But it's stuff like saffron where that's a super labor-intensive kind of thing. It's a pretty delicate kind of uh, crop. You need a lot of specific skills. And Iran and other places really have been doing this for a long time. It's not part of the Afghan culture. So we'll spend millions of dollars on some saffron project that um, probably all of them are dead by now. We just throw money at stuff, crazy, crazy amounts of money. Chemonics had one contract, just one contract in Hellman that was $150 million. Thanks, Slate Plus listeners. Give me an email at highfination at slate.com. Let me know what you think of the show.